All right, y'all. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Whenever you are listening to this podcast, this is the Teachers Workroom Podcast, a sacred time and space where educators, especially educators of color, discuss topics that affect or day-to-day in teaching and the education industry in general. And this morning's topic is really around crucial conversations. At some point in our careers, we are forced to have crucial conversations, whether they are with our managers, colleagues, students, or parents. And if they are initiated by you or another person, it is highly likely that we will have to engage in one-on-one or collective crucial conversations, otherwise known as difficult conversations and otherwise known as meaningful conversations. So I kick it to the team. Let's chat. What is your definition of crucial conversations and what has been your experience with having them in your career? I'm going to get to Dr. Bethel first. Thank you so much, JG, for that. Um, I think that what well, my first definition is the, the need to speak about um, things that happen in the workspace, right? So as a professional, uh, as you just mentioned a couple years ago, we all have had to, at one point, um, either engage in one or initiate one. So I think about several times as being like a black male in education, which is a very female dominated career. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, a career that's really dominated by um, Caucasians, right? Um, We most often have to like, look at it through a a race lens as well as like I need to have this conversation but like how do I go about it so I think that for me my definition would be like having the courage to basically like stand up for yourself right basically uh putting the things um on a table that happened and then lastly is separating the incidents from a collective. Like even though I may have had like a negative conver- uh, interaction with someone before, I try my best not to create a narrative that will lead into like an incident when I try to have that one-on-one conversation because I don't want the, th- the person to feel like, oh, you've been harvesting these feelings for a long time and now you're just like um, trying to like, you know, uh, attack me, if you will. Correct. You know, so that's up, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts, uh, Miss Leisha? Um, what a crucial conversation is. It's a conversation that at um, it's a conversation that at the onset there are two varying degrees of points, right? Like, that's the purpose. You are on opposite sides of, like, if there's a spectrum. Um, And I think the purpose of it is to get as close to people to the middle as possible. Um, Whether that means you leave the conversation completely in agreement with, like, all your misunderstanding completely, like, gone or now you understand, or to agree to disagree. I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know about the last part. To agree to disagree, but does that mean that the conversation was effective or right. ineffective? Right, right. Yeah, I, um, I agree with both Dr. Bethel and Leisha on their definitions of crucial conversations. And I would, I would add that for me, a crucial conversation is not only needed when there is a difference of opinion or when um, it is that uh, is disagreement or rather when it is that something has happened, even though it's usually an incident or an occurrence or a situation that triggers the need for a crucial conversation. I err on the side of um, these are conversations that are really important to move the work forward in the best interest of students and their um, and outcomes for students. And so sometimes that might mean that I need to have a crucial conversation about the way something is working, right? To either add to it or take away from it or to change course again, to keep the work moving along. And in that conversation, everyone might be in agreement, right? But it's a conversation that has to be had. And I think the thing or the qualifier for me, or one of the main qualifiers for me uh, for crucial conversations is that that urgency, right? Behind having the conversation, coming up with next steps, so on and so forth, to again, move the work to move the work along. I agree with you, uh, JG. I think it is about the urgency and it's also about the intentionality. Um, like what are the intentions behind this conversation? Why does it have to be had? And I think a common denominator, just from my own experience, has been this word safety, right? Like the intentions is to make everyone feel safe. You as an individual, the collective, and of course the children. <clears throat> and I think, um, so that's how I define a crucial conversation. Uh, and I guess we'll get into, you know, ones that we've had in the past. But I think what I would say, it, it's always stemmed from an event. I haven't had a conversation that stemmed from, um, let's fix something, but uh, but always like this happened. So now let's discuss it. Mm -hmm. So Princess, um, you brought up two points there, right? That I want to dig into a little bit, right? This idea of safety. Because um, in the resources that we've been uh, using coming out of the book, Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High, uh, <laughs> um, safety is like one of the number one, well, not one of them, but the number one uh, thing that they pull out or conditions that they pull out um, to say that it needs to be present there right and we throw around this safety word a lot you know especially in the school setting what what does that even mean like safety first in a crucial conversations because i do think that if there's a misalignment around what safety is and what it looks like in a crucial conversation i do think that it creates that in itself creates an unsafe environment for either of the parties or any of the parties that are engaged in the um, crucial conversation. So what's the definition of safety in having crucial conversations? Yeah, I just want to jump in there. I think when I think about safety, I think about it being totally subjective, 
right? Because how you define what makes you feel safe will be totally different from how I define what makes me feel safe. And a big thing with that is also boundaries, right? What are your boundaries? What are my boundaries? And coming to a place of establishing that. So I don't think that safety, and you guys agree, disagree. I don't think it can be defined as like a overall thing. I think it has to be defined by, <clears throat> sorry, your own individual, <clears throat> sorry, boundaries. So if there's so much subjectivity, and Dr. Bethel, I know you want to jump in here, but you know, I got to capitalize on what uh, Sula just said. If it is that it is subjective, how then do you ensure that it exists for everyone in having the crucial conversation? Yeah, I think that's the perfect segue. So what I was going to initially say is that I think the challenge is as a leader, because it always goes back to leadership and how leadership sets the vision for the school, right? So one of those one of those things, I mean, there has to be relational trust amongst staff, right? Because at many times, you know, organizations force people to engage in these type of conversations without having the language and the vocabulary to do so, right? And when you're, if you if you will, forced to do so, I think that this has created a more rift and dissonance between staff members, right? Because at the foundation, again, leadership has not uh, prepared staff to do so in a way that's meaningful. And then talking about safety, right? Because as an organization, um, it's gonna be easy to say we have to have these A to B feedback conversations. But the difficulty is as a staff, we have to agree to say, hey, this is what creates a safe staff or a safe uh, relationship for the entirety of the team because it's never gonna be, I gotta create a safety net for JG, for Dr. Bethel. <laughs> like that's humanly impossible. Right. But that comes along with what we call like, you know, organizational management, you know, uh, organizational theory, you know, leaders, leaders take for granted the ability to build relationships and cultivate, you know, relationships amongst staff and themselves in order to engage in these conversations. Because we think about having, you know, conversations with family members uh, as a, it's a part of culture. You have to have a conversation, but with that work, you have to create a, a, a work culture that has that same conversation as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 very true. With the um, with like creating the, the an environment in which uh, there's an established trust, right, an established safety, um, and established strong positive relationships that exist. And I have to agree with you that in my experience, <clears throat> this idea of creating a safe space is usually reactive rather than proactive, right? That you jump into the school year in general with a lot of professional development around the tactical things, right? And the things that are indicators of performance, whether it be for performance for staff or performance for students. And not a lot is invested in building or establishing and maintaining strong positive relationships between each other right as um staff on the different levels right leadership to you know management to 
um, your lower level staff, so on and so forth, but also between leader and leaders and staff, this top down, down up um, kind of kind of flow. And I think that naturally, whenever it is that you approach it in a reactive kind of way, it already um, it already comes with some, or rather, it creates some distrust, right? That uh, it creates some. Oh well, we're only doing this because this has happened, right? That we're only seeking to 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 repair relationships here because you know the leader or the dean or the teacher is feeling a certain kind of way and it's manifesting itself in their relationship, in their communication, in their so on and so forth. But at that point in time, I think to many, if not most, it is disingenuous, right? Is that how you say that word? Um, it is just, it is, it, it comes with a, well, we're only doing this because XYZ has transpired. And I think that, that what that does in the mind of a lot of people is that they approach the work now with a certain level of um, distrust, a certain level of reservation, because they have already endured the impact of relationships that don't have trust, right? And and um, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna leave it at that. Yeah, um, Leisha brought this up a couple minutes ago and I want her to expound on this too. So she mentioned how like, there are reactive approaches versus proactive, right? And I learned that with school cultures and successful schools, everything is done in a proactive way, right? So like they're planning for things, they already have like ways to do it. Whereas in the past, like you said, we've been at a school where things have always felt so reactive or like this has happened to this person. So we have to now address it as opposed to an entire staff. So I would love for Leisha to like expound on like the reactive approach versus like being proactive. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, when we have these civil uprisings in our community and there are brands who are mostly white or just, you know, embody capitalistic, um, I guess, features who don't usually promote black artists or whatsoever. And then all of a sudden it's like out of the woodwork, all of these companies are trying to use black artists, use black creatives to promote whatever their agenda is. Right. And I think that's what we're talking about. Like the lack of transparency, the fact that it's starting because of an issue right. is the issue that sh feeling safe should be a prerequisite. So when you're getting hired and you're being onboarded, why isn't that, a pause for like oh how would you like to be identified what are some things you know what i'm saying i feel like that's the place where that's the most genuine way you can make everyone individually feel safe according to their credentials lifestyle whatever right there's so many things um but the fact that it comes after an incident happened it's kind of like let's just say face or let's just bs our way through Mm -hmm. not looking how we want it, you know, not looking in a ne negative narrative. Right. I mean, that's how it comes across. What say you, Sola? I don't know, because I'm, I'm debating a little bit in my head because I still think that safety to some extent has to be reactive only because 
as the workplace begins to change right. and diversify, it is just, it's impossible for you to know what you don't know, True. right? So I'm, I'm trying to think about from the standpoint of a leader, if I'm now, if my, over the years, my staff are changing culturally, how do I understand the boundaries of this culture opposed to the other mm-hmm. without first kind of testing the waters? And unfortunately, someone is going to get burned in that situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I do agree. Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Dr. Badal. Go ahead. No, what you're saying, you know, um, I think that when you bring multiple cultures together, right, um, you have to create norms. And, and, and then and there it goes back to leadership. Create a space where you're continuously building the norms, right? Because you have people from different backgrounds. Different. You remember when we were like thrown into like the DNI conversations and they were like people of color and then white. And then within the people of color group, we were like, but hold on, our experiences are vast, right? We have Caribbean, we have Hispanic, we have Black American. We have, so even in that, we were looking, you know, at each other like, we had different perspectives. We had different experiences. But as a, a, a group of people of color in that workspace, we had to create norms, right, for ourselves. So I think that, like you said, is in my opinion, you cannot create 100 norms for 100 staff members. Right. But I think that collectively we sit down. Because I, I get what you're saying, Princess. It, it makes perfect sense. What I'm saying is we contribute and then know that they're not static, right? And know that like, hey, we need to amend these norms so that everyone collectively feels safe. Right. I, I just want to say one thing. I think now I'm thinking that's why it's so important that the leadership committee or whatever is reflective <laughs> of the staff, yeah. right? In terms of culture and diversity, because it will take someone on that leadership to be like, actually, this is culturally unacceptable, right? Whereas if it's 100% white and the staff is totally diverse, that that cannot exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Dr. Bethel, I, uh, I see you want to say something. I just want to, um, before we uh, lose what Sula just said, this idea of uh, the leadership team being representative of the staff, right? So that they're able to be, so they're able to bring those perspectives to the table, right? But even in doing so, we can be met with challenges, right? In having having those conversations. Because, you know, uh, Sola, you just raised an example um, of saying, well, that person would therefore be able to better represent the views of someone or the people and staff to which they're close to which is who are also in their affinity group right but then that also becomes or can become an area of contention on the leadership team if it is that i am a hispanic leader and i'm representing what i believe are the best interests of um, members of my affinity group, but I might be met with some degree of, of resistance there. And then there comes a need to have a crucial conversation 
And then the space, the safety of that space becomes something that's in question now, right? Uh, But it has to happen. And it it has to happen, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But I just wanted to tease that out a little as Mm -hmm. we're transitioning to talking about um, people of color specifically having those crucial conversations. Go ahead, Dr. Bethel. Yeah, no, I think that's great, Princess. I I would say for sure, be reflective of staff. But I have seen, like I said on a leadership team a couple of years ago where there was there was one person of color and then I was added, right? So when I say to a certain extent, I would say that even though you had a person of color on, on, on leadership, it didn't make the, the bringing up of the crucial, crucial conversations better, right? But let me tell you what made it better. It was me because as a leader, not because a black leader, but but because a lead as a leader, I push to have those conversations for staff period, right? Because let's just say, for instance, we look at the landscape of education. Will every school really be reflective of you know the student population and leadership and staff? No, right? And then I'm not for just putting people of color on leadership team just to meet the quota, right? Because if they're not experienced, then it's, right, it's, right, right, right. Because it still defeats the purpose. And I think that's more damaged than good, right? But what I would say is we need a leader in leadership to say, hey, let's push each other beyond sitting in these seats, right? Like you said, to have these conversations for staff. Because even as a person of color on staff, white people would come to me in pockets and bring up different incidents and everything. Black people will, Hispanic people will on staff. So then as a leader, I said, it is incumbent upon me to push leadership teams. Even though I felt silo, you know, I don't care. I said, we have to have these type of conversations because this is how staff is feeling. So like you said, Princess, it goes back to leadership, creating the space, involving staff because really and truly school is not about leadership right we i mean we we know it but it is about the people who we serve Mm -hmm. so i think that that segues or that builds perfectly on what princess said about you know um being reflective of your population yeah and what she said about intention it seems like that's the common Thing that has to be or the common trait that leaders or whoever are engaging in crucial conversations have to have as a prerequisite is just like what is my intention um yeah and what like what is the purpose of the conversation yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so how does it how does this change because we, we brought up you know leaders of, of, of color um and by extension of course educators of color how does it change for for us, right? Or if it does any at all, or what are some of the things that, what are the some of the factors that play a role in us approaching these types of conversations, whether it be as a teacher or whether it be as a leader? Um, in my experience, I have found it to be even, even more difficult um, having crucial conversations about matters, especially matters that require a certain level of cultural awareness um, that 
my colleagues on a leadership team might not have, or even my principal might not have. And so it creates for me or has created for me an added layer of difficulty to this difficult conversation or to this crucial conversation, especially being a black male too in education and a black male who has primarily worked on the forefront of school culture um, and behavior um, of, uh, of, you know, of behavior management of other <laughs> black um, and Hispanic males and females um, and those that are non-binary. Um, in, my, in my experience, walking into a crucial conversation as who I am has been most times, nine out of 10 times, really difficult, especially if it is that the person I'm in conversation with doesn't share the same identity or identity markers that I do share. Um, and it, I think the difficulty comes in being understood or being misunderstood, right? Um, having to, what, what do they, there's a term that they call, call it where you know, you're entering into a room or conversation as a person of color and you have all of these thoughts or these different negative narratives about the stereotypes that are placed on you, right? And uh, thinking that those stereotypes or, or knowing, let's be real, that those stereotypes are going to play a role in how you are received and how you are understood and having to, this feeling of having to navigate this conversation in just like a, it's almost like a feat, right? It's like you got to set up and prepare to, to have this conversation and you want to use certain words and you want to be so mindful of your tone and you want to be so overly considerate of who's, who's sitting across the table from you and you want to, yeah, it's like, am I the only person? No, I think it's back to Princess's point that safety isn't a universal term. So, for example, that person, let's just say it's a black male having a crucial conversation with a white male. I mean, the playing field is not even leveled at the jump. So adding in the factor of feeling unsafe, like you just described, going into the conversation with all these preconceived notions about how, you know, you may be received, like you're not even able to be fully present to have the crucial conversation because you're dealing with all of these things that to me are factors of feeling unsafe um so then it's like okay is the crucial conversation going to be effective the white man is going into the conversation he's probably usually in that in that um in that position right where it's just not the same. He's not going through his mind. It's also like when black people go into luxury stores, the experience is very different from a white person going into a luxury store. You can almost, you know what I mean? Like, it, of course it varies, right? Like you can also almost lose track of your body language and how you're going into the store. You're, you become, you start to act weird because you think the other person is going to be like, it's just all these things that like black people and people of color or all groups that are oppressed have to deal with and I think it's back to Scylla's point of safety there is no universal way to make everybody feel inclusive and safe 
I just want to add this really quick point. Um, and I was trying to find the article just now, but I can't find it. A few years ago, I remember reading an article that said Black people or people of color endure way more stress by just entering a room. I don't know if anybody's seen that article before, yeah. but it was saying every time a person of color enter any workspace or any space, we are naturally in our mind counting how many people in that room look like us. Right. That's true. Right. And so that goes back to the point of representation in these crucial conversations. And I'm just thinking about, like, there was a day at work a few years ago where um, I had, like, a bunch of people come observe me. And then I had to sit in a room and talk about my observation. And everyone in the room was white. I I, I remember telling you this, JG. Everyone in the room was white except for me. And they didn't even say anything crazy to me. But just (laughs) automatically being in that space, knowing I was the only black person, or like immediately I was just like full of anxiety right mm-hmm. and and so that's why crucial and that's not that wasn't a crucial conversation so imagine being in a crucial conversation where that is the environment yeah I was saying I think of me um I actually I think it, it depends on like the not depends, right? I want to be clear and I want to just speak for myself and not put it on everybody else. <coughs> um, and I guess because I have had to um, deal a lot in leadership previously and most recently with like white people in leadership mm-hmm. and have sat at a table like since like my third year teaching, but I would say that I learned to get out of my head right early on before I had the language and before I knew what it was um I had to create uh focus on my thoughts and my points versus leading with like how I showed up if that makes sense right so you will hear uh a lot of you know white people like they said about President Barack Obama at first was like or he's articulate, or he's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Some of the things that they wouldn't say for a white person who showed up and just gave, you know, spoke because you expect it, right? So a lot of the feedback would then come as like, oh, he's intelligent, oh, he's articulate. But the thing is, it's like, you actually think that's flattery, but it's not because you would expect that from me if I was white. Right. Now I want you to focus on the skill set. So it's like, you know, as people of color, you know, I mean, we're going to show up as black, period. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? We're going to show up as whatever with the stereotypes. We have to here, here's the narrative, here's the noble story and what we believe about ourselves, mm. right? Because a lot of times the imposter syndrome plays a role and, and then it comes in like, am I am I supposed to be at this table? You know, do I supposed to be here? Like you said, Jamal, with like a lot of times of like sitting on school, you know, culture. And then this time, this year, me shifting into culture versus like um, the academics, right? And I see how they perceive black people who deal with culture versus like in other areas because they think you only know about like, oh, how do you tell the kids to sit down? Or how do you, you know, blah, blah. And they think it's limited. And it's, it's like, actually, we are intelligent. So let's not just talk about how we want the school, the, the students to sit down. We actually want to talk about how students learn. We actually want to talk about. So I think that with shifting, we don't, I mean, the task is always on us. Like Prince uh, just said, like, we endure the stress, but we have to push it back, you know, if you will, off of us 
and then show up in a way of like, no, I'm very clear. <laughs> when I said that I was very clear, uh, I articulated those points uh, very clear, right? Uh, we know a principal and people who we used to work at will always try to give us feedback on like, oh, you're not clear or you're not organized. And it was like, well, actually <laughs> we were <laughs> um, because you're not actually listening. You're actually looking at whatever and you have a framework. But let me tell you how this gonna go. And I'm not gonna change from tomorrow to the day because I was very clear. Right, right. You know what Dr. Bethel just uh, took us through reminded me of a unit that I actually taught. Uh, Sulla, you might have taught the same um, the same unit too. It was when we were teaching that curriculum and part of it talked about privilege and oppression. Um, and much of what Dr. Bethel was just taking us through reminded me of two things, right? And I think it's, um, these are two things that I really took into uh, my future and navigating uh, places or yeah, places or situations or conversations where initially I might not have felt like I had belonged, right? And um, one of the things that that we would have taught in that unit was this idea of self-awareness and being really cognizant of where your strengths lie and what your areas of growth are and to continuously be doing that reflecting, processing, implementing, working to get better, right? So that whenever you walk into a situation or conversation, like Dr. Bethel was saying, that you are so sure of who you are and what you bring to the table. And also, you're also sure about what you need to get better at and bring to the table, right? And I think that that work, yes, has to happen with self, but it also has to happen with a group of like-minded individuals who can be really direct and honest with you. I think that this group of friends right here, that's one of the things that I particularly enjoy about our relationship, right? That we can we can give each other the real real and 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 give it with love. Sometimes it's not given with love, but it's received with love, right? And it comes back to the relationship. We we ensure that we invested in building positive, strong relationships with each other in which giving constructive feedback was the norm, right? Like the other day, Dr. Bethel had to say, listen, JG, take the feedback that you're being given and interpret it and, 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 and keep it pushing, but still know who you are, right? So, so that's one, um, and I'm gonna try to keep this short, but the other part is this idea of stereotype threat. And I think it happens a lot. We, we, hear, we hear a lot more examples about it as it relates to black women, right? And the whole angry black woman, da, 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 da. So when you walk into that scenario, to that conversation, you're so concerned about not wanting to live out that stereotype that you kind of make yourself small, right? So being aware that stereotype threat is a real thing. And working to combat that and become clear about who you are and what you're bringing to the table and bringing into that, into that, um, 
into that meeting or that conversation in that room. And the last thing is, um, that's a great question, uh, Dr. Bethel. I'm going to kick it over to you so we can explore that a little bit. But the last thing is, I don't think a lot of people of color accept, and you know, y'all might disagree, but accept and then, and therefore actively work against internalized depression. I don't hear and see and speak to a lot of educators of color who are one familiar with the this idea of internalized oppression oppression sorry and two actually do believe that it's something that plays a role in the way that they navigate their day to day at at a school and I think that that right there is a key that unlocks a door for you if you really sit with this idea that, you know what? I have a certain level of internalized oppression that's operating within me. And I have to identify what those internalized oppressive um, things are. And I have to actively work against them, right? Because we do oppress ourselves as individuals, especially in areas where we are outnumbered or areas where the status quo has been X for so long and we are realizing that this status quo does not work. Dr. Bethel. You know, in saying that, it made me reflect on, like you you mentioned like our, our relationship, how we met and everything. And I think that one of the things that is unique and not that we just big each other up because it's fluff or whatever, but because it's genuine respect and care and like you all are some of the most professional, most intelligent, like on your A-game people, people that I know in life in general, like as friends, as people, as professionals, as everything, right? But I think that one of the things that made our relationship unique was that none of us had a sense or a feeling of uh, internalized oppression, right? If you will, let me say why. I think that the work that we did together and how staff viewed us was different from the stereotype because the staff that we worked at was used to people of color being silenced, used to people being siloed. So when, you know, we were able to develop those skills and then also build on each other. And then remember JG would be like, oh, I'm gonna hold you accountable to have that conversation. Oh, oh, and you let that happen to you? <laughs> and he would be like, no, that's your fault. You need to go back in. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> like, honestly, it was true. Because if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you will start to believe those things that the people are putting on you if you're not careful and if you're not surrounded by a group like you all to say, actually, no. Or to say, well, yeah, Courtney, you need to work on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you're saying, yeah, that's true. I do need to, to to do that work. But one of the things, like you said, like people of color, like I've interacted and met some people online in a, a Facebook group about like doing some uh, dissertation work is that they don't feel empowered in their workspaces, y'all. And I'm like, wait, you didn't say what? Or like that's happening to you or, or you know, so I think that yeah, just like in our lonely age, it's, it was mind-boggling to me to find that in 2020, 2021, people were not, people of color, 
are not having those conversations, not stand, I'm like, girl, you better than me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was going to say that was part of, so when JG said, mentioned um, Black people doing the work of unlearning the uh, oppression, I forget what you called it, I'm sorry. Internalized oppression. Internalized oppression, there we go. Um, I think that we were exactly what that was, right? Like for so long, we saw black people at the place where we were doing the thing that people say that black people do, which is not stick up for each other, right. not have each other's back when there's adversity with a race that is with a white uh, white person. Um, I think that could be an example of us addressing or just saying, absolving ourselves from that particular internalized oppression like I don't give a fuck this is my job but that's my friend and what they're saying is right and this is some bullshit so you know what I'm saying a lot of people of color like Courtney said are not willing to or feel that they are empowered enough smart enough to talk up or challenge something that a leader said that's maybe you know a white person um, and I think that that's something that we embodied uh, when we were all in the same workspace yeah 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 you know, there's <clears throat> there's just so much that can um, come into this conversation and and all of that good stuff. Um, and we're going to run out of time, but I wanted to, I think it's important that we that we leave our audience with um, some real what's the word? It's like some real tools or things to think about, and then we can whip around with um, a parting message from them. For them, sorry. And I wanted to uh, at least offer the following for our audience, and it comes out of the the Crucial Conversations book, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. And I would even say Tools for Talking, period, not only when stakes are high. And the top 10 takeaways include safety being first, letting the facts lead, looking within, so that introspection to raise self-awareness, finding mutual purpose, curiosity, in other words, really probing and finding out and seeking to understand the other party's view, watching your words, this idea of what you say versus what you hear, um, keeping in mind, especially if it is that you're a leader, that many people can read what you're saying as my way or the highway. Number nine, to make sure that you listen up, you listen carefully. And I would even encourage you to take notes as you listen. And lastly, to self-assess for success. And again, I really want to point out that of these 10 steps, there are two of them that speak directly to this idea of introspection, to reflecting, to processing on self. I'm a huge proponent and I can lead, <laughs> I can lead our parting messages um, for our audiences. It is truly important to really reflect on your own values, your own character, and your own um, practice, and to really, really have a clear picture 
of how you show up in conversations first. So then you can do the work to ensure that the more and more conversations you have, that you are showing up with improvements each and every time, taking learnings from your previous conversations about self into your next conversations um, so that you can really be as effective as possible in having those conversations with other people. Who wants to go next? Yeah, to build on that, that was very good, JG. I would just say like as an individual, right? You gotta know when and where to defend yourself and you gotta know when to grow, right? So you gotta really coach yourself on like and get out of your head, right? And just really know like, okay, Courtney, um, that is vital feedback grow, but that comes from self-awareness, right? And then it comes from me having a growth mindset and being uh, real, you know, with myself. And then looking at like, okay, who can I speak to that'll push me, that'll give me that real feedback? Mm -hmm. White or black though, you know, or Hispanic or whatever, but you really need that real feedback to grow. I love that. What say you, Asia? I think also with um, a part of having self-awareness is also possibly in the workspace having an accountability buddy or Mm. a voice of reason. Maybe that's a better term. Um, So I know sometimes I've gotten feedback that I may have been like, huh, that's confusing. I actually thought I was doing that. Can you help me to see where in my practice that I'm not doing that? Or can you give me an example? You're always empowered to ask for an example or to ask someone to elaborate. Can you show me what that looks like? Can you, you know, tell me what that sounds like? Um, I think use that as your tool. Like we all have been saying this whole conversation, we are more empowered than we believe that we are. And I like the point that um, Dr. Bethel said about getting out of your head. That's something that's really helped me and just showing up unapologetically. Like I cannot carry other people's bags with me to sleep. I'm not going to walk into a space and think, oh my God, what is this person thinking about me? What is, it don't matter. What I think about myself is actually the top and bottom line. And I'm going to show up again. That's part of self-awareness, right? I know what I bring to the table. So there's no reason for me to get lost in my head about what this person may think or may feel that I'm inadequate in this area, whatever. I'm self-aware to know where I stand. Yeah, I I just, I want to stamp that again, because that is so, so important, that self-awareness. Um, you do get out of your head, but before you get out of your head, you got to go into your head and figure out what is it that I'm qualifying as my boundaries? What is it that's going to make me feel safe? So when those incidents do happen or those occurrences, you're not in your head, like, hold on, because you have already established what your boundaries are. So get in your head and then get out of your head or get in your head so you can get out of your head. Get in your head so you can Get out of here. Okay. That was was great. By Stella. (laughs) Okay. Help me, baby. (laughs) All right, Joe. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Teachers Working Podcast. Of course, our podcast can be listened to on all streaming platforms, but particularly Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor.fm. And until next time. 
Bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>